Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. Thanks everybody for joining today. Really look forward to the conversation with Ido. So Edo is the obviously the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. It's the, the nation's oldest and largest nonprofit leadership organization working on behalf of hospice and palliative care providers and professionals. Prior to joining NHPCO, Mr. Bannock was a partner in the firm of Gallagher, Elvis, and Jones in Baltimore, Maryland, and he served as the deputy director of Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Before his leadership role at CMS, he served as Associate General Counsel at Visiting Nurse Service of New York. Mr. Bannock holds a BA from Binghamton University and a JD from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Let's get started with um, sort of how technology plays a role in the provisioning of care. One of the things that I just love about hospice and palliative care, and one of the things I fell in love with very early on, 17 years ago when I got started in the industry, was that it was more than just treating the physical condition of the patient and or family member. It's also dealing with uh, psychological issues, it's dealing with emotional issues, it's dealing with spiritual issues. Such an incredible service that these individuals provide in all care settings. And so in the human touch world that we're in, that is you know, high touch with patients and families, how have you seen technology help with the provisioning of care in hospice and palliative care? Thank you for that. The, the, best, uh, the best example obviously is the use of telehealth. To do the face-to-face interview, for example, used to be a face-to-face interview. And we intervened pretty early on with Congress to say, look, this is something that um, probably period, but especially during a pandemic, can be done virtually. And the same is true of visits themselves. So we have obviously seen an increase in the use of telehealth. I think the word of caution there, and I think where we want to make sure that we learn from this pandemic and accelerate some of that move, but at the same time, not too far, is we still have a very lonely country, in some places a very isolated country. My great aunt Ruby, who just moved into an assisted living, I used to play Jeopardy with her uh, uh, Alexa. That didn't mean that she wasn't lonely, she still was. She still needed that human touch. So we have to make sure that we use technology appropriately, but not to replace the human touch. And that is, I think is really the sweet spot of hospice and palliative care organizations. So when does, when does a person actually need a human touch? provide that human touch. And when when can they do with a virtual visit? Make sure you do that. And then importantly, make sure that hospices and palliative care programs are compensated for the technology that it takes to do that. Uh, you know, they're, as you know, they're not always. In fact, they're nowhere near as compensated as, as hospitals and other institutions are when it comes to technology. So that's something we need to uh, improve. Are you seeing any trends? At, we're on the topic of providing hospice and palliative care in the long-term care community. Are you seeing trends in the transitions of care that you've seen? So patients coming from the acute care side, and, and have you seen technology playing a role there? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, we are, uh, I think, and in, in providers are seeing more individuals go home. And I think that, uh, you know, this requires, and I think we, we get to this later, but different, um, different flows of, of referral patterns. Um, I think that increasingly we are going to have a pre-acute and want to have sort of a pre-acute strategy that doesn't necessarily rely on individuals to decompensate, go into the hospital, go into a subacute, and then become eligible for hospice. It would be much more effective uh, and you know more humane from a from a person perspective to provide pre-hospice uh, serious illness care in the community, and then have that individual be eligible for hospice. They need to go to a, a, a nursing facility or a hospital. That then they should, but they shouldn't automatically go there just in order to sort of get on this conveyor belt that takes you um, through the end of life. That's not humane. Uh, I don't think that's what anybody wants. In what ways do you see the delivery system at, you know, evolving as we transition to our second theme here? So taking a look at the healthcare system as a whole, what ways do you think the healthcare system evolves moving forward and what does that mean for hospice and palliative care providers? Right, so you know, traditionally, it's been the case that hospice has been a fee-for-service benefit, separate and apart from, uh, from everything else, and really separate and apart from a lot of the changes and innovations that have been going on. For better or worse, I think um, hospice is going to become more integrated into the rest of the, uh, of the system. And there's a huge upside because more people can know about it. It can actually be a part of the, uh, the overall plan of care, and there's a huge downside. Also, because I think the rest of the healthcare system has picked up on the fact that people actually want person-centered interdisciplinary care. So we have to make sure that hospice is not supplanted. And, you know, you see what I'm talking about, not just in the future, but actually in, in what's happening already. There is, is an announced VBID uh, demonstration that would carve hospice into Medicare Advantage, which we, we think is premature and not ready to go in January of uh, 2021, and we've made that known. There is a, uh, uh, a direct contracting uh, demonstration that really stands for the proposition that the government's gonna tr- contract with different entities. And um, these could be everyone from uh, a drugstore to Walmart to uh, Amazon to deliver all Medicare services. And so again, instead of being cut out when separate, the hospice component's gonna be included in anything that entity is paid for and essentially carved in. And that's something that's worth um, uh, paying attention to. So it's no longer just Medicare Advantage, it's everything that potentially could uh, wrap um, uh, hospice uh, you know, in. Now the upside is that this pre-hospice uh, population that doesn't have less than six months to live, but maybe has three years to live. Maybe we're talking about somebody with COPD or dementia. These are individuals who really can benefit from interdisciplinary person-centered care in the community, and yet we make them go through this entire rigmarole for the last three years of their life in order to finally get some semblance of that at the very end. If we can take some of these, some of this evolution and actually provide some of what we provide for a couple days or a couple weeks for a much longer time, it's going to bring costs down, it's going to bring quality up, and it's going to bring satisfaction up as well. Um, and it's something we're excited about. And this goes back to um, basically the payment systems evolving of the Medicare Advantage carve ins is that the patient 
is uh, would not possibly be getting the choice and possibly be stuck with a hospice that maybe doesn't provide the highest level of care, right? And so how would that be checked under these new models or medical groups with doctors on staff and the hospice doctors not wanting to contract with other hospices? How this is going to impact everything from patient choice to quality of care to the overall hospice model? Amen. Look, I think in a, in, a, in, a, in a perfect world, and we're not in one, a Medicare Advantage plan could actually help address some of the issues that we were just talking about. If you're in L.A. County and there are 500 hospices, and a lot of them are not particularly good, and the plan only contracts with the ones that are good, then maybe that's, that's an advance. That's something we can talk about. The fact, though, is that's not how this is rolling out. And uh, the concerns that, that, uh, that were just articulated are my concerns as well. And I'd go one step further about patient choice. What happens when the uh, managed care organization contracts with one entity for palliative care, which we were just talking about, there's no definition of palliative care. So what are they contracting for? Whatever, they make it up. And then a different provider for hospice. What I'm worried about is that Mrs. Smith who's seriously ill is gonna be referred to the palliative care provider first. And she might never get to the hospice provider, even though she might be eligible for hospice. That would be not okay. That would be not legal. But I have some concerns that that is what's gonna happen. And we're watching that incredibly closely. And one of the things that we've highlighted for CMS, it's not just choice of hospice, it's also a choice of, of palliative care pre-hospice. And if there's no definition of palliative care, how is a consumer to figure out what their options are or appeal if they don't get their care? So, amen. If you could offer one piece of advice to hospice providers as we weather this COVID crisis, what would that piece of advice be? Well, I've got two pieces of advice, and and I think, but but you know, I think the advice should go both ways. I you know, I want to I want to get advice as well. But I think number one, make sure that folks in your community are aware of really the, her the, the heroic work that you and your staff are doing to stay safe and at the same time to go in and provide care. To me, this is a moment that, you know, sort of is um, right up there with the reaction to the HIV and AIDS crisis. You know, you had a whole country running away from something, and then you had a community running toward it and saying, how can we help? And I think that Letting, you know, understanding um, uh, within the community of that, I think, is incredibly helpful. The other thing is bereavement support. You know, COVID's going to be um, going to be gone at some point. Um, I think it's going to be a long time before it's gone. But the latent grief and bereavement uh, that is going to go on throughout our country, it's going to last for a long time. You know, I wasn't there for my father's death, for example. That's something that's going to stay with people. And so the extent to which... And I'm just using that as an example. My father's still alive. The, uh, you know, the, the, the fact is that if you provide grief and bereavement support, you should do more of it. If you don't, you should do more of it. I think that that is a lot of what the community needs. And that's really going to help us advocate at a federal level to say, look, we need additional support because look at all these things that we're doing and that we did do while this nation was really hurting. And I think it's a good investment in the future of this model of care. Well, land here. Fast forward six to 12 months from now, where do hospice providers need to be most focused on? I think the most important thing is diversification. 
if there is a, an opportunity to provide, you know, person-centered interdisciplinary care under contract with different kinds of entities, a hospital calling itself an ACO, a physician group uh, providing a uh, serious illness uh, model, SIP, a Medicare Advantage plan, I think it's going to be really important for the hospices to establish those relationships to acquire the technology that's necessary to uh, take risk and really to uh, begin or to continue to live in this sort of new value-based world because at some point it's going to be all that's left for better or worse and i think it's really important that if you're not in that space to get in that space and to diversify as much as possible and i think those who do that will be quite successful and we're there to help At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.